That's pretty good, isn't it? I do want to thank Jonathan for filling in last week. I understand he did a pretty good job from what I hear. I've never got more emails about a sermon than my son's email, than my son's sermon, not my own. I mean, so I appreciate it all. But anyway, I know what you mean. You are proud of your children. Uh, but I do want to thank him for filling in. And thank you for your prayers. Uh, last week, Tina and I had the privilege to go back to our home church and uh, got to preach homecoming at our home church. And uh, what a thrill that was. And I appreciate your prayers concerning that. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 4. Now, let me just say this. That video, uh, I think a lot of people think that when they go to heaven, the first person they're going to meet is Peter. Uh, that's not theologically correct, by the way, okay? Uh, but what, what the video attempts to show you is definitely theologically correct. And uh, we're going to make an attempt to prove that to you in, in Romans chapter 4 here today. We're continuing the series, uh, Royal Invitation. And for those of you who may not have been a part of our study so far, it's a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. Um, and today we're looking at the provision of being accepted by God. Now, every good teacher knows that illustrations are crucial to keep people interested and listening. Matter of fact, there's times, you don't know it, but there's times in which I, I sense sometimes I'm losing you, and I'll either say something funny or I'll, I'll go into a story. And you know what happens? I get your attention back. I mean, it's funny when you're up here. You can see when you're losing people, trust me. Uh, and it's a giveaway when your eyes are closed. So I can see that. But anyway, <laughs> but, but the great preacher Spurgeon said this, illustrations are like windows because they let light in. Now, even in this heavy doctrinal book of Romans, Paul stops right in the middle of it and gives two illustrations that bring clarity to our salvation. So look on the introduction on your outline. In chapter 4, Paul gives illustrations from the stories of Abraham and David to demonstrate the truths he has just shared in chapter 3. Now, the question he answers in these verses is, how can a person be accepted by God. Now think about our journey so far in this book. The first three chapters of Romans is all about uh, God or, or Paul making the case that we're all guilty before God. He, he starts with the rebellious and he moves to the respectable and then he continues on into the religious. And all those, any of those categories who do not know Christ, guess what? For all his sin can show the glory of God. That, that's a picture of who they are. That's their, if you want to call it, their spiritual resume. But then he comes to the end of chapter 3, and he begins to change the conversation. He begins to talk about this wonderful thing called salvation, that in light of the fact that we're all guilty before God, God has made provision for us to be accepted by him. Now, why would Paul go to such great lengths to explain our salvation? Because if the enemy can cause confusion in regards to the salvation that Jesus provides, then the enemy can keep us in our sin and under judgment and condemnation. And so it's very important for us as individuals to understand. It's very important for us as a church to communicate the clarity of what our salvation is all about. It is vital that we understand that. Our eternity depends on what we believe about Jesus and the salvation he provides. So look on your outline. What two words best describe our acceptance by God? Now, the first word is the word justified. 
That is a word that explains how we can become accepted by God. It is literally, the word justified really means a declaration of righteousness. Now, it it carries with it the context of this, to be completely accepted by God, to enter into a right relationship with Him. If you were to look over at Romans chapter 5 and you were to look at verse 1, you'll see there. It says, therefore, in light of what he's going to say in chapter 4, having been justified, how are we justified? How are we made right before God? How are we declared righteous? How? By faith, we have peace with God. And how did it come about? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's very important that we understand that this first word, justified, is a word that Paul's going to use time and time again. And literally, if you believe like I believe, God's word is inspired, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that's introducing us to that whole idea of being justified. A second word that best describes our acceptance by God is accounted. Is accounted. It literally means imputed or credited righteousness. Now, isn't it interesting that Even God has what we could call spiritual math or doctrinal accounting. Here's what I want you to understand. Here's what that word means. It means that God calculates our sin. Okay? How many of you have that on on, uh, sin there? You've got that accounted against you. And then he calculates what Jesus did on the cross and computes them together and says, one, cancels out the other. He looks into the debit column at our sins and the credit column of of, uh, God's righteousness through Jesus. And you know what happens? The books in the end balance. They balance. How do we know that? Well, in James chapter 2, verse 23, look here on the screen, it says this. And the scripture was fulfilled, which which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now think about that. When you start looking at this whole idea of salvation, when you look at the word justified, I'm declared righteous. I I couldn't get there on my own. He had to literally stamp me declared righteous. (laughs) He, He had to literally say, yes, accepted by God. How did it come about through Jesus Christ? But then there was the accounting part. My sin total tallied up. And you know what's interesting about my sin total? It continues to tally. How many of you know that, right? It does. I mean, if we're in the flesh, we stand a good chance that sin continues. But here's what's interesting about it all. Every bit of that is wiped out by the provision of Jesus Christ. And there's your accounting. And that's what he's referring to. Now, both words, look on your outline, imply extreme results. They imply completeness and perfection. Now, think of this, y'all. Because God credits our sin to Jesus' account, he then credits Jesus' righteousness to our account, which again brings, uh, brings the completeness and the perfection that God requires for us to be accepted. So who, who did all the work? Who did all of it on our behalf? The Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to get that through, through those two words that you'll see time and time again, and we'll see through the scriptures here in the book of Romans. So look on your outline. What are the means to be accepted by God? Now, now Paul clears up any misunderstanding about how we were saved through the story of Abraham. Now, now look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham, now what does that mean? He's getting ready to tell the story of Abraham in the context of salvation. Now, what do we know about Abraham? He lived thousands of years 
before the cross. Before the cross. And yet we can talk about him in light of salvation. So why did Paul choose Abraham? Why did he do that? Well, listen to this. Paul's main audience here is the Jew. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. He was what many call the original Jew. <laughs> he, he was really the first. Through Abraham, then through Isaac, and then Jacob, all the Jewish nation was born. Abraham was also the father of the Arab nations, the Muslims or, or the Islamic nations. All the feud in the Middle East is really a family feud, if you really think about it, between cousins. Arabs and Israelites are really related. They both can trace themselves back to Abraham. Now think of this, Abraham. Three main world religions can be traced back to Abraham. Islam, Christianity, and of course Judaism. Now that's very interesting. Of course one leads, or at least two of those, because of, you don't have the completion of salvation, leads to destruction on their own. It's only through Christ that we know in which salvation can come about. And that's what Paul is trying to clear up here. So that's why he uses Abraham. Now, what do we know about Abraham's story? Abraham was born in the city of Ur, in the Mesopotamian Valley. In Ur, he was, if he, if he did what everybody else in the community did, which they say that possibly could have been 300,000 people that lived in this area, he would have been a moon worshiper, a moon worshiper. That's what they did there. It was not out of rebellion, possibly. It was out of arrogance. and Excuse me, ignorance. One day, God, the true and one God, spoke to him and said, Abram, that's what his name was before Abraham, Abram, take all your family and move. Abram or Abraham said, well, where are we going? God said, I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> How many of you like it when God leads that way? <laughs> yeah, some of you are daredevils. That's good. Uh, I like to see the plan. But you know something? In my years of living, I've noticed that God doesn't necessarily show the plan. He reveals the next step sometimes, and that's about all we get. It's all about the fact he wants us in relationship with him, not a relationship with the plan. And, and that's what we're seeing here. This seems to be exactly what God is doing with Abraham. I mean, God could have told Abraham the whole plan, but he didn't. Because he knew that the only way that there would be a relationship between the two of them is he had to show him step to step, not the plan, because then it would have been about the plan. So God said, I'll tell you when we get there. He, he, here we see by faith that Abraham moved. God promised out of this one man he would make a great nation, the nation of Israel. Paul knew that the Jews regarded Abraham as a great example of faith. But here's something you may not have known. Did you know that some of the Jewish writings even went as far as saying that Abraham lived a perfect life as Jesus did? Yeah. There were some writings. If you go study the life of Abraham and look at through the lens of some Jewish writings from long, a long time ago, you'll find that they would say that Jesus, that, excuse me, that Abraham lived perfection also. So this may be another reason why Paul is using Abraham because they believed he was justified by his works. Now, here's what you need to understand. The Bible clearly says that, that it was reckoned unto him. It was accounted unto him as, as righteousness. But listen, he wouldn't have needed that if he lived a sinless life, which tells us that that's, that's a false premise. And so, so here's what we need to understand. 
Abraham was the perfect example to prove that we are not saved by works, but by faith. So look on your outline. We are accepted by God, not by doing good works. Paul opens this this section of illustration with a question. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Uh, some of you have heard of the message. It's a paraphrase of the Bible. Look at what, listen to what they say verse one, about verse 1. So how do we fit what we know of Abraham, our first father, into faith, into this new way of looking at things? Of course, the new way of looking at things is, is the provision of Jesus Christ. Okay, And so how are we to look at him in that context? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. Basically, what Paul was saying here is that if you believe that, you have a wrong view of salvation, a wrong picture in heaven. There's not going to be any bragging in heaven. You do realize that, right? When we get to heaven, it's going to be all about worshiping Him. It's going to be about, oh my goodness, I can't believe He thought that I, does, that I, have his, that I could have His grace and, and His mercy. It won't be us going out saying, hey, look at what I did. Let me tell you what, what I did that really impressed God to get me here. There won't be any of that talk. And Paul's, telling, Paul's saying that. Paul is saying here that you do not find your self-worth and your acceptance and your accomplishments or, or achievements. You may impress other people, but you're not going to impress God with those things. Look at Romans 4, look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or reckoned to him for righteousness. Now from Genesis, we find the actual account. Look here on the screen. It says, then he, that's God, brought him, that's Abraham, outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham basically just believed God. He believed God. It was Abraham's faith that credited him righteousness. The the word here is credited. Abraham didn't deserve it, nor did he earn this privilege. The Bible says that basically God chose him to be this person. Next, Paul illustrates the difference between wages and a gift. Now, we know this. Wages are those things that are earned. A gift is something that is received. So in Romans chapter 4, look at verse 4. Now to him who works, now this is in the context of salvation. So literally it means this. Now to him who works for salvation, the wages, those things that you think you've earned, are not counted as grace, that's the gift, but as a debt. Again, that's a reflection of wage. It's the difference between earning something and receiving something. Now, those of you who... Go out to work each day. You go to work. Maybe you work an eight-hour shift, a 12-hour shift, whatever it may be, but you go out. At the end of the week, your boss gives you a paycheck. Now, is he giving you a gift? No, you've earned that. That's wages. You've earned what you've worked for. So it's not a gift. It's the wages. It's the terms that are there. So, So... 
do you consider it a gift? No, it's a wage. Now, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, speaking of wages, it says this. For the wages of sin is death. It's not a good thing. Okay? So, so it means we get our condemnation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. If we think that we can come by way of salvation through earning it, guess what? We're only going to re- reap judgment. It comes up short. It'll never work. It doesn't matter what you do. But we earn it. But then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's the key, the gift. Wages are something you deserve. And that's the context of our condemnation. He's basically saying, it doesn't add up. Yeah, you're, this is what you deserve. Those wages, condemnation. But a gift is something you do not deserve. God justifies us. We say, with his grace. But you know what the word grace literally means? It literally means charity. It literally means gift. It's through a gift. So our salvation is not something that we earn. The only thing that we earn in this life is condemnation. But we do receive the gift. So look at Romans 4, look at verse 5. But to him who does not work... That's a reference for salvation. He does not work for salvation, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His face is accounted for righteousness. Now he's putting it in the context of where we may fall in. Now, why would God justify the wicked? Because that's all there is. (laughs) That's all we are. That's who we are. There's no others. How do we know that? He's already said it in chapter 3. For all have sinned. And come show of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one even on the thought pattern of doing that. Is what he's literally saying. But, but here's what's interesting about all that. He justifies the wicked because that's all there is left. I mean, we are sinners. He's already proven that in the first three chapters. So God literally, when you think about it, justifies the imperfect. Okay? Your faith, listen, is credited as righteousness. When you have faith in God's provision through Jesus, it goes into the credit column. How many of you are glad for that? I got my sins over here, and I got his gift over here, his grace. How many of you are so glad that his grace will always be bigger than my sin? Did you know Paul's going to talk about that in the coming chapters, about how all that plays out? Now, it's not a license to sin. He's going to tell us that, too. It doesn't mean we go out there and do what we want to. Oh, it's just going to be covered. i got enough credit over here. Jesus put tons of credit. Sin all I want to. No, that's not the attitude either. He's going to explain that later. But we have that in our account. The bottom line is this. If you're a Christian, there's nothing you can do that can make you more acceptable to God. You are acceptable to God. Has nothing to do with your performance. Has everything that he, he has provided for you through Jesus. And you receive that. God loves you, listen, just as much on your bad days as on your good days. How many of you have good days? You feel like, man, I tell you, God has just, he, he has blessed me. He's this. You have the proper perspective. You're out there doing things. Or through the Spirit's just flowing out of you. It's all over the place. And then you have those days when What? Acting in the flesh. Somebody done rubbed you wrong. You get out there and you start showing out. Do you know he loves you even on those days? 
It's nothing you've deserved. Listen, you, don't want, you do not want what you could deserve when it comes to God. You don't want it. The only thing we deserve is what the wages of sin produces, and that's judgment and condemnation. But he provides another. It is credited according to your faith, not according to your works. Now, David's story, he's getting ready to bring up David. David's story agrees with Abraham's. Now, think about what Paul's doing. He's pulling out the heavyweights. Someone has said that Abraham is kind of like the George Washington of the Hebrew nation. So you know what David would be? He would be Lincoln, probably. And so you've got that whole idea. David says in the Psalms the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Look at Romans 4, look at verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes or credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom shall not impute to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Do you know when David wrote this? He wrote this after he arranged for Uriah to be mur- uh, murdered and his sin with Bathsheba. And so what you have there, you, you have this whole idea. And David is just back. I mean, he's almost, when he, when he writes Psalms 32, it's almost like he's blown away. He's literally quoting Psalms 32. 32 is one of the Psalms of confessions after David has murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. And you know what? He can't get over the fact that God provided for him in that. How many of you are glad that God provides in those situations? Y'all, it wasn't, listen, it, it wasn't David up there thinking, you know something, I think I'll do this and I'll do this. I, I know God will forgive me and all that stuff. Did David suffer tremendous consequences because of this sin in this life? Tremendously. His children were affected by, I mean, there were all kinds of things that were unleashed when he did this. And, and here's what we need to understand. The consequences may still be in play, but the fact that we're righteous is also still in play. I mean, it covers us. How many of you are glad that your sin can be covered? Yeah, and it's made possible through Jesus Christ. Now, David said, basically, I got myself in such a mess because of my sin, but God cleared my record because I believed and had faith, not because I deserved to be forgiven. Happy is the man whose sins are wiped out, whose slate is clean, not because he worked for it, earned it, or deserved it, but simply because God honored his faith. Paul, by using Abraham and David, is simply saying, you do not become acceptable to God by doing good works. So here's the bottom line. Before the cross, the believer's sin was paid in anticipation of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Since the cross, the believer's sin has been paid in advance. And so just like the faith that it took to be saved in the Old Testament requires the same type of faith in the New. Except for we're looking back at it, whereas they were looking forward to it. And it all centers around what? The cross of Jesus Christ. Next, we are, we are accepted by God, not by relig- rit- religious ritual. Did you know ritual never saved anyone, at least biblically saved anyone? Never has. There's a shrine in Mexico, which is a Catholic holy site. is built over the place 
where they say Mary supposedly appeared on one occasion, the Virgin Mary, in the hope of her interceding for them every year, listen to this, tens of thousands of pilgrims crawl on their hands and knees for a quarter of a mile to the shrine to enter the shrine and light candles for friends and relatives to reduce their stay in purgatory. You see, all that's ritual. It's ritual. It's that attempt to, to bring salvation. And it's in, the, in light of this, not even about their own salvation, it's the salvation of those who have already gone on. In Nepal, I've been there. Some of you have been there. There's a river in Kathmandu where Hindus believe if they bathe in it, they will go to what they call heaven. By the way, it's a pretty nasty river. But again, ritual. Our religions seem to have rituals that falsely promise acceptance by their God or some type of hope in the afterlife. The Jews believed circumcision, and it was a ritual that made them acceptable to God. That's the whole language of the first century. That's what Paul continued to come up against. There were those that say, yeah, you're a Christian, that's fine, that's great and everything, but have you been circumcised? Because you'll never be accepted before God unless you're circumcised. That's why they were all saying. And so look at Romans chapter 4, look at verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. I'm going to prove this to you in just a moment. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. Notice it's a sign. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. How many of you have clear understanding of what that's all about? <laughs> it's like you're going in circles. Now, let me show you what he's talking about. Now, think about Abraham's life. What's the difference between Genesis chapter 15, when he was given the promise, the covenant was given to him, and Genesis chapter 17? In chapter 15, we believe Abraham is approximately age 85. In chapter 17, he's 99. When would you say that the relationship with the one true God, where faith, where his faith reckoned him righteousness, when, was, when did that take place? It happened in Genesis chapter 15. He was 85 years of age. When did circumcision come about? His, the whole idea of it. 14 years later. That's what Paul's alluding to here. Paul is blowing the minds of the Jews that believe that the only way you get to heaven is by being circumcised. Circumcision, listen, is a symbol, not a cause. It is a symbol of your faith, not a cause of your faith. The modern counterpart of circumcision is what we would call baptism. Now think about this. Baptism doesn't make you a believer. It demonstrates that you're a believer. Baptism like the wedding ring of the Christian life. The, the ring doesn't make me married. It shows that I am married. The fact that I'm married is my commitment to my wife. The ring is a symbol of the commitment. It's not the commitment. 
unless you're in debt for the ring. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking about that. Okay. So, so what makes me married? It is the commitment in my heart. The ring is an outward sign of an inward commitment to my wife and my marriage. And so therefore, that's what Paul basically has been trying to describe. If not here, he's done it in other epistles. He's like, you know, that means nothing. It's just a sign. So look on your outline. We are not acceptable to God by our works, nor by our religious rituals, and nor are we accepted by God by keeping the law. He goes into verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of of this world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, That's not come about by the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And basically what he's saying is this. It's a whole language of this. If, If I'm counting on my works to get me to heaven by keeping the law, by keeping rituals, you know what he says? Wrath is coming upon you. God's not impressed. Does not make you acceptable to him. Doesn't even come close. That's what he's saying. Keeping the Ten Commandments will not get you to heaven. So why does he use Abraham as as an example of someone who was saved without keeping the law? Here's why. Abraham lived, listen, 430 years before the law. How did the Jews believe they were saved? By keeping the law. How was Abraham held to that law when it was written 430 years later? That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. How could Abraham be saved by keeping the law? The law was established to make us aware that that we could never be accepted by God through it. It's a demonstration to prove what we need, but that we needed grace. That's what the tabernacle represented. That's what the temple later became represented as. And guess what? All of, the, all of that pointed to Jesus. Pointed to Jesus. We can't be acceptable to God through our doing good works, through ritual, by keeping the law. But look on your outline, but only by faith. Verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Now, let me just say this. I'm, I don't really have a lot of time to go in this. Some people say there's a discrepancy between what this is saying here and what James 2 is saying. James, have you ever studied James? It's the whole idea uh, that works are very vital uh, when it comes to our salvation. But let me tell you, literally Paul's writing about one thing and James is writing about something else. Paul is writing about saving faith in this context. James is writing about growing faith. There's a difference between the two. So Paul was talking about the root of salvation while James is talking about the fruit of salvation. Now, why would we think that? Because James seems to put it in light. Look here on the screen. James uh, chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, do you know that that happened 14 uh, years later after the, the scene that we've read here? 14 years later, that came later. The works came later. Did you know that's the same thing with our own salvation? The works come later. Now, in Romans, Paul says, Abraham believed God and he accepted 
and he was accepted as righteous. He uses an example through the promise that God gave him about the sons and the generations to be born. Now, what could Abraham do about the promise God fulfilled in his life? Nothing. The only thing he could do was receive it. But as a result of him receiving it, that's where the works come in. Same thing with us. Same thing with us. James says this is an example of faith. So James talks about an event that happened 35 years later, Isaac being offered on the altar. Abraham had walked with the Lord for a long time, and then we see this example of faith. Now, listen to this. It is not that faith is the opposite of works. It is that faith is faith, and we demonstrate it through our works. It is your faith that saves you, and it is your works that proves your faith. So do they go hand in hand? They go hand in hand, but the works don't save you. It's the demonstration. Next, why is our acceptance by God only by faith? To demonstrate his grace. Isn't it interesting when you look at the whole context of Scripture? The conclusion you must come to is this, that God wanted his love and his grace to be apparent to us all. That's really the context of the whole Scriptures. He wanted that to be obvious. He wanted to demonstrate that, and he did. So look at Romans 4, 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, all the Jews, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. Now think of this. Are you glad for God's grace? (laughs) Otherwise, you could never be sure of your salvation. If it wasn't grace and it was works, you would always wonder, have I done enough? Does the good outweigh the bad? Where am I on these holy scales? <laughs> but now we have the assurance. That's the good news, y'all, of the gospel. Why is our acceptance by God only by faith? To demonstrate his power. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations and the presence of him who he believed, which is God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. What does all that mean? It means that the power of salvation or the means of justification, listen, begins uh, God's grace, not in man's faith. The assurance of our salvation the, the means of our justification, listen, all begins with God's grace. We, listen, when we come to know him through that provision, we are responding to God's grace. We're not creating faith over here to bring to the grace. Listen, the grace has been displayed. We have faith as we reach out to it. It's not, it's not original in our faith. It's original in the context of his grace. So our faith is just a response to what he's doing. That's a big difference. God initiated his acceptance of us by reaching out with his grace, and we responded by faith. Therefore, God brings life to those who were dead. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? If you see that often, you don't see that. (laughs) Only he can do that. So here's the application. What are you trusting in to be a recipient of, God, of, of acceptance by God? Works or grace? If by grace, here it is, y'all, your sins are forgiven, your sins are covered, and your sins are not counted against you. How many of you say that's pretty good news? 
pretty good news. Did you know that Paul in, in Ephesians summed it all up? He actually summed it up better in Ephesians. Here, look at what he says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. Nothing you did. Nothing you earned. Not a wage that's out there. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we, listen, it goes further. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It doesn't come about to good works. It's for good works. He started something else. Here's the expectations for good works to follow. But it all started with him, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, our salvation, here's what you need to understand. Our salvation does come with an expectation. But that expectation does not make us any more saved. That expectation just reveals that we are saved because we're trying to meet that expectation. Does that mean we'll meet it perfectly every time? No. Some of you have already blown it today. I, mean, I hate to say it, but we have, haven't we? And the fact is, it's not something we earn. The only thing we earn, according to Scripture, listen, is spiritual death, judgment, and condemnation. That's the only thing we're capable of earning in this lifetime. But on the other hand, we are capable of receiving, which is the grace, which is the gift, that has been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only realized when we come to Him by faith. By faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. and We just thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I just pray that you just help us to understand that uh, when it comes to the terms of salvation, uh, as Paul seems to be clear, clearly stating here, we, we must understand it. If not, we could still continue to be in our sin. Father, I thank you for the writings of Paul. I thank you not only for the writings of Paul and the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write those things. I thank you for, for the role of the Holy Spirit as he impresses upon us those things in which we see. And Father, there's a, con a connection made between God the Father who put it all in play uh, by the provision of the Son and then the, the whole thing being revealed by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that the Trinity is all about the salvation. And Father, we just pray right now, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, before they leave, that they would talk to myself or another pastor, Lord, that you would just work in their life. Father, we just thank you for, for this salvation. We thank you for this provision. Lord, help us to never get over it. In Jesus' name, amen.